it's just taking some control. It's getting into the habit of checking, you know, your credit card statement when it comes in. It's getting into the habit of checking what's happening with changes to your super and changes to your health insurance when they send those emails through. Just actively managing your finances because it's so easy to just let it slip. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. If you don't manage your money, someone else will. This is the words of Kim Northwood and our guest today on the Ultra Habits podcast. So Kim has recently published a book, Work Less, Make More, The Millennial's Guide to Financial Freedom. And I heard about his work and I felt like given the lack of financial acumen that I come across, particularly in the millennial demographic and, you know, young people in general, it's not something they teach at school, right? Like how to be financially savvy, how to make your money work for you. And yes, it's important and very important to work hard, but how do we leverage our finance in a way that works harder than us? And so when I heard about Kim's work, I had to get him on the show. The book focuses on using money to its full potential from home insurance strategies, insurances, superannuation to modern investing tactics. And we cover this in our conversation. We talk about how to avoid simple mistakes and how to truly seek financial security and ultimately the confidence to make your own financial decisions. So it's a really functional conversation and it's a conversation you you may remember I had something similar with Robin Taub of Toronto, Canada, where she had written a book about raising money smart kids. And I think that this is very much the next chapter in terms of the lessons that we all need to learn as we evolve, as we get older. So whether you're a millennial or you're pre-millennial or even post-millennial, a lot of what we talk about is relevant to you. And you're going to get some really good insights and advice from Kim as to how you can invest your money in a way which really works for you. So Kim has worked in many different arenas. He was formerly an advisor to Australia's trade and investment minister. He's managed economic development programs in Afghanistan and in Papua New Guinea. He's actually a long-term investor and entrepreneur himself. And he, you know, he's deeply concerned about the financial risk, financial insecurity of the millennial generation. And this is what's really led him to writing this book and us ultimately having this conversation. So I hope you get as much out of it as I did. As always, please leave us a review, rate this podcast. Go on the website at www.ultrahabits.co. See what we're up to. Sign up for the newsletter. Get access to all my habits. I record and really unpack a lot of my life on that newsletter through exclusive content that's not available to everyone. It's rough, rugged, and raw, and it's about how I set up my life in my day, in my minutes for 
success. Anyways, folks, I've got a plane to catch, so I got to get out of here, but I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Kim. Peace. Kim, welcome to the Ultra Habits podcast. As usual, uh, with most of uh, the interviews, we have technical issues, but we've made it. So we've landed here safe and sound. Glad to have you on the show. Thank man. you very much. Thank you for having me on. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Kim. So you're in Melbourne now, but you don't live here, do you? No, correct. Um, I actually, well, um, I've actually been living over in Papua New Guinea for the last couple of years and have just got back to Melbourne. Um, just spending a couple of days in Melbourne, seeing mum and dad, a uh, few friends, and then um, heading over to Thailand tomorrow for um, for three weeks or so. What are you doing in Papua New Guinea? It's like not a place that when you ask someone, oh, I live in Papua New Guinea, like that's that can't be that random. What are you doing over there? <laughs> so I've actually finished the job over there now, but um, but I was working on economic development programs. Uh, so, you know, everything to do with kind of helping the development of the country in the economic space. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges over there. Uh, it's, uh, it's a developing country for sure, but, um, but it's a beautiful country and it's got a lot of potential. So, um, so I was helping out with, uh, some of the programs there to, um, to help build up the economics capacity of the country. Right. So when you talk about, uh, developing the economic capacity, are you working with the government? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's working with government, it's working with business. Um, it's working with other people in the country, civil society, et cetera trying to help them um, build up the kind of technical expertise needed uh, to, to, you know, to put the country onto a sustainable, um, onto a sustainable path. Um, it's going to take a, a little while, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and, um, and there's, a, there's real potential in that country. It's a fantastic place. Right, right. So obviously Australia has interest in its local partners and helping them develop competency and capabilities therefore the trade is strong and if our partners are strong we're strong that's right? exactly right you know if they're strong we can we can do more business with them we can trade more you know you want to see strong uh strong neighbors um and and strong countries that are close to us and more travel and business and trade between the two of us yeah so you're a you know i looked at your background like you're a, a bit of a mover and shaker so you've also got a what is it a non-alcoholic or is it an out al does alcohol in this beer you're an importer distributor beverage maker like what's going on there tell, tell give, give us the rundown on yeah that. so you know a few years ago uh it was over in the netherlands and we were looking around and you know i don't drink so much uh these days and we you know, we'd always go out to the restaurants to the bars um and in Australia, I'd be looking around and I'd say, oh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have an um, alcoholic drink. What's, what are my options? Basically, I'd have like Coke, Sprite, you know, sort of soft drink. I don't really like that. Or I can sit there drinking water. Um, and over in the Netherlands a few years ago, we, we looked around and every single restaurant and bar had three or four just like great non-alcoholic um, beers or wines, uh, just really good options. And, you know, so we just went up to one of the breweries who, who, makes the beer and we said, can we buy your beer and import it to Australia? They said, yeah, sure, of course you can. <laughs> like, no worries. Um, so we, we brought it over. The first shipment came uh, and sat in our lounge room, in fact. Um, so we had uh, several pallets of beer just in the lounge room and we started going around Canberra um, and trying to sell the beer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, eventually it started to take off and um, and now we've got a whole bunch of different breweries on board that we work with and and obviously in that time, um, it's gone from being quite an obscure product to a much more of a mainstream product now. And, and you're starting to kind of see 
great options um, in all the restaurants and bars around Australia, which is really cool to see um, and great for me. You know, now I can go to the restaurants, bars and get a great non-alcoholic beer instead of having to sit there with a, with a Coke or a Sprite. So, I mean, it's a great model. So you kind of developed a portfolio of non-alcoholic beers and I think trends are moving towards a healthier way of operating and, and you would have probably been right at that upward curve of the take of non-alcoholic beverages like have you guys gone super hard or you kind of have let it grown organically yeah i mean it's it's been um it's been much more organic i'd say i mean everyone's going hard at it thing is with like uh with a trend like this you you can't actually go ahead of the trend ahead of the curve you have to kind of go with the curve you know so if you go as a business if you go too hard beyond the curve uh, what's going to happen is you'll be overstocked um, and you'll kind of you'll um, put too much too much into it and uh, and the returns won't be there early on so it's really one of those kind of trend businesses and with yeah with trend businesses you, you have to be pushing the curve but you can't go too far beyond the curve so that's what we're trying to do um, uh, is just build the overall market I mean the overall market on alcoholic beer is still, uh, I think it's around 1% of the total beer market. So it's very, very sort of small still. Um, but up in the Netherlands, I think it's up around, uh, I think they say 5 to 7%, 5 to 8%. So there's a lot of growth still uh, possible here in Australia. Um, and that's uh, that's where we want to be. We want to be where the growth is at. I, I think the challenge with non-alcoholic beer is you've got the domain of alcoholic beverages not wanting to cannibalize that and therefore they're not going to be investing in marketing and massive campaigns so you've got the smaller guys like you that are really coming up against what is a big alcohol consuming culture here yeah. and you don't have the marketing budgets yeah. and yeah. it's this it, it requires also such a fundamental change in regards to how we view our health so you got all these dynamics at play mm. I think the only play would be a big provider with massive marketing budget coming in here that wasn't affiliated with any alcoholic beverage that was really interested in pure disruption yeah. and chaos, right? Like let's let's get everyone on non-alcoholic beverage. We're not worried about cannibalizing any of our alcohol yeah. revenue because they won't have any, right? But I think that's going to not probably happen. So yeah. um Anyway, but look, moving on. So, I mean, you know, you've got a, a, a mixture of, of government background, working macro, microeconomics. You've got your own entrepreneurial journey. And now you've come to this place, and that's kind of why I wanted you on the show, where you uncovered a, a need mm -hmm. uh, around educating millennials around money and, and, I guess, working hard, but working smarter and and, um, you know, I, I do agree with you that it is becoming increasingly difficult for Australian young people mm. to have a piece of the pie because of the escalating cost space. And I suppose the first question is, how did you decide to focus on this area? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a good it's a good question. It's the one I always get asked. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, as you know, so I've got an um, entrepreneurial background. Um, I, uh, I actually um, founded a website um, about 10 years ago as well, and I sold that um, recently. Uh, and so uh, the beer importing business is kind of my second second um, sort of side business that I've been running. Um, 
But if there's one thing I've learned over the last, um, you know, 10 to 12 years running these businesses is that they are really hard, really, really tough. Like there are, there are absolutely no guarantees with these businesses. Um, every day it's just, it's just a battle. Uh, and there's just hits from all directions. Um, so, so I wanted to write this book because, you know, I feel like the message that we often get is that, um, to move ahead, to get wealthy, what you need to do is chase more and more income. You just need to chase more income. And we do that in a whole, um, in various different ways. So, you know, some of us go out and start side hustles and some of us get onto the corporate path, the career path. And we, you know, um, hustle as hard as we can to try and move up that corporate ladder, get that next promotion. We're always kind of hustling, trying to move ahead, trying to chase more income. And I, and I said, you know, that's, that's great. But if you don't know what to do with your money, you will never get ahead. You can chase income as much as you possibly um, can, but if you don't use it well and you don't convert it to wealth, uh, then you'll never actually move ahead. So, so I wanted to kind of, um, I wanted to write a book that, that addresses this and, uh, and demonstrates to the extent possible that, um, what you do with your money is just as important, if not more important than how you go about chasing the money. Um, and so that's, that's really the core of the, of the book. Um, so I was looking at what kind of books are out there and you've, you've really got, you know, you've got your get rich quick type books. Um, and you've got your sort of basic financing books, uh, basic personal finance books. Uh, and, you know, I didn't want to write something in that space. And then you've got the books that are kind of like, say, the barefoot investor, which provide this sort of really good, good advice. Um, but, what you know, I said, what what if you're sort of a little bit beyond that? You don't just need uh, the basic bucket plan that um, that's outlined in that book. As good as that advice is, what if you want to go kind of to the next level and get that next level level of insight? And there's nothing out there that I could see on the market, um, so I decided to write it. I decided to write it. Hmm. Do you think that the millennial dream? <laughs> has changed in terms of so the Australian dream in the context of the millennial do you think that's changed and do you think that millennials are clear or less clear than the forefathers yeah, yeah. what that dream looks like it's, it's, <laughs> I, uh, I mean it's really the the it's really the topic um that we're all concerned with at the moment is you know what how are we as millennials gonna move ahead in our lives compared to say our parents um when we look back and they had what looks like you know Free education, cheap housing, uh, and access to to really great jobs, and you know, a clear path that was laid out for them. How are we going to, uh, in in our own lives, like move ahead and um, and make our own way? And you know, the the fact is, things have have changed since uh, since um, since our parents were the boomer generation uh, were sort of growing up and building their own lives. Um, uh, housing is more expensive now. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, cost of living is going up. But, um, having said that, there are, you know, certain things that we have access to as millennials that our parents didn't have access to. Um, there are some kind of financial advantages that, that we can take advantage, that we can, um, use that weren't available, uh, back in, back in their day. Um, a couple of examples. Uh, our, um, you know, our access to investing on the stock market. Um, back in, 
back in the sort of um, 80s, 70s and 80s, you know, if you wanted to invest in the stock market, you had to go to a stockbroker, you had to, you know, pay really expensive fees. Um, there were often minimum amounts to invest in. You had to pick single companies uh, as opposed to today where you can, with the touch of your phone, you can go on through one of the share trading apps and you can buy these funds, broad-based funds, which give you access to, you know, entire index and, um, you know, for example, top 200 companies in Australia. You can do that at the touch of the button. Minimum investing amounts, uh, investing amounts are so much, um, is so much uh, less. And, uh, and technology has kind of really changed the investing environment. Um, so that's sort of one example. Uh, the second is with our superannuation structure, um, this is, I mean, this is a huge advantage for people who are younger these days. Um, back sort of 70s and 80s, uh, you know, superannuation was tied to companies. Um, so if you left the job, you often just got a payout. Uh, and I think the stat was in the late 80s, only 50% of people even had superannuation here. Um, so it all changed in the early 90s with uh, the superannuation guarantee. And now... Now um, all workers are guaranteed 10.5%, going up to 12.5%. Um, plus, if you start salary sacrificing a little bit extra, you get all these tax breaks. Um, and it's a really incredible vehicle for, for driving your own wealth. Um, so, you know, there are things that we have advantage, uh, access to that they did not have access to. Um, and, and I guess my point is, you know, every generation has its challenges and we certainly have our challenges with, that, with housing and cost of living. Um, Access to jobs, etc., but but we do also have some um, some differences and some advantages that we can take advantage that we can use. Yeah, my wife and I are actually meeting with our uh, accountant and uh, their team this week to to look at superannuation because I just you know I have the view it's been sitting there kind of not mm. working for me well, and I've kind of handed it to one of these funds and you don't really know what's happening, right? And I think it's very easy to bury your head in the sand because. You know, I'm not a financial person and yeah. financial things suck for me, right? But I think that to your point, you know, like I've always thrown energy yeah. at everything. That's yeah. how I've created wealth, yeah. right? Like I've thrown a maximum amount of effort in a few different things and and that's paid off. But as I get older, particularly mm. I'm 41 now, you know, it's like, okay, well, how can I start to pull other levers, um, you know, that more scalable and, and, and less dependent on, on my yeah. energy. And do, do you think that millennials, you know, I know that in some ways, you know, you have the traditional archetype of the millennial that's, you know, jack of all trades, they've got their hands in different pies and they're quite savvy and, you know, they're doing a bit of crypto, they're doing a bit mm -hmm. of trading and, you know, I've come across these millennials that are what I think a, a bit yeah. of an anomaly um, the kind of cool, yeah. cool nerds that kind of knew stuff and started to do stuff and have created wealth. But do you think in general they're, because my feeling is maybe not with millennials, but kind of the, the generation coming up behind millennials there, there's a bit of an mm. apathy about, and I don't know if that's just me as an older person looking at young people. And that's just the way it's always been with older people looking at young people, but there's, I feel there seems to be a bit of ambivalence around this this kind of topic and maybe a lack of care factor. Am, am I right or wrong in terms of what 
you've no i think found. i think you're i think you're right um you know there's always i mean there obviously is like and i was the same early 20s you kind of uh with money you sort of ah oh, you know whatever i'll think about it later um that's an older me problem and then suddenly you you, you wake up and you know you're 41 i'm 38 like you're like oh what <laughs> Um, so that's always been, I mean, that's always been part of it. Um, but there is definitely a, a sentiment that, uh, you know, people throw their hands up and they say, oh, it's all, it's all getting too hard. I'm going to just tap out. And that's what you've got with this, um, uh, with some of these sort of movements that you see. I'm just going to tap out. This is, it's impossible. I'm not going to even try. Um, but the, the thing that, uh, that always kind of struck me is that, you know, we're, uh, all of us are so focused on, um, on money and, uh, and, you know, either not having enough or moving ahead. But so few of us actually take the, um, the proper time to sit down and read about it and, and learn up on it. And we do just kind of let things slide for years and years and years. Um, I mean, superannuations is, is a perfect example of that. How many people just don't know what's happening? You know, you've got this fund. It's taking 10.5% of your money every, every, um, month or whenever your paycheck comes. They're just, they've got it. And, and people don't even check it. They don't know what's going on with it. Um, they don't bother checking in the fees. They, I mean, they're just, uh, I just find it kind of, um, extraordinary actually that, um, that on the one hand, we're so focused on it. And on the other hand, we're just happy to be completely apathetic and not do anything about it. This is why you know financial literacy is um, is really so important for the millennial generation and those up. Yeah, yeah, mate. Look, it, it. I think people will tend to focus on where they feel a sense of control. I I remember prior to you know uh, this iteration of myself, I come out of uh, the mm. logistics industry, right? And we'd have customers that would troll through their freight and logistics bill. And they'd complain about the variance in fuel mm. surcharge, like which was half a percent here and there, because it was like it was explicit. But they're not looking at the fluctuation yeah. in their yeah. rates. Because yeah. it's yeah. too complex. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna look at yes. the one thing yeah. that I, I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the low ticket item, right? And and I think, you know, particularly with these financial institutions, they're clever, right? Like, you know, if you think about when you switch you know, I recently moved mortgages. Yeah. So one bank uh, that I ended up going with had a slightly um, uh, better mm. offering, but, but the other bank had this massive yeah. cash back, right? Like, so they're going to give you upfront cash to switch to them for the mortgage, right? Like, you know, three grand or four grand. But when you actually look at it, the other option yeah. was better. But these banks know that most young people in particular, or most people are going to be like, oh, that $3,000, let me throw you at that. Let me let me get your focus yep, yep. there. Then we're going to hammer you on the back yep, end. Right? Yep, yep. And so I, I think, and, and most of us will just take that option because it's too complex and we don't feel comfortable operating in things we don't know. That's the main thing. I think that's the challenge with financials is that, a lot of people don't want to look at it because if I don't look at it, I don't have to open up that closet, which is a mess and start to no, organize. That's so true. Right? I mean, Ajay, I think you've actually just hit the nail on the head there. It's absolutely spot on. Like the way, I mean, you can focus on the smallest thing that doesn't make 
a skerrick of difference and the big things are going on in the background and you just completely ignore them. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Um, you know, yeah, on your point about the banks, uh, the, uh, you know, the, most people in Australia will end up going with one of the major banks for their, for their mortgages. Um, I think of the total, last time I checked, it was the total, um, home loan market is worth about two trillion, of which the major four take up about 1.87 trillion of that, I think, last time I checked. Um, so it's just an overwhelming amount, uh, that go with the big banks. And, and why? Because, because they know the big banks. They've grown up with the big banks. They're familiar with the branding. Um, but, uh, which, which allows the bigger banks to kind of charge these higher rates. Um, when, when if you just, uh, you know, take a little bit of time and look into it, you can, you can really find some good deals out there, particularly with, I mean, home loans are just, um, huge because of the amount you pay over the life of the loan. And they know that. So they can, uh, give you all these kind of add-ons and products to get you in, knowing that over the life of the loan, they're going to make much, much more from you. Um, uh, yeah, a good example at the moment is how everyone is, um, a lot of people are moving from fixed rates onto variable rates uh, um, throughout the year. And I recently did myself as well. And, um, you know, they put me onto the highest rate that they had. And, and I looked online and they're offering 2% less to new customers. Loyalty tax, mate. It's crazy. And then I called tax. them and I said, you get I said what's going on here? Like, you know, you're giving 2% best, better to these new customers. And um, I said, what can you do? And they, you know, they went back and sort of, oh, they're like, oh, this is what we do. You know, this is how you get rolled over. And I said, well, can't you just give me what the new customers get? And they, mm. they went back, they were like, oh, mm. yeah, okay, sure, we can do that. You know, <laughs> It's like a 10-minute phone call, but they just rely on people not um, taking the initiative. I, I think, and, you know, I'm a person that pushes back on everything, but, like, even I was like, surely you can't push back on your bank, right? Like, and then I was talking to my friend. He's like, dude, you can. Like, I think they mm. depend on the severe, like, it, it, the bank, you know, serious institution. You can't just call them up and yeah. be like, hey, you know, but, yeah. yeah, you can. And I think that a lot of people cop it. And, and to me, banks are, like, mortgage loans are commodity. And all that marketing around the support just pisses me off. Like, you know, these fluffy marketing ads, like, they're supporting you and your dreams. No, they're <laughs> not, dude. It's a commodity. Like, you know, they'll take that house from you if you can't make your payments, dude. Don't worry about that, right? Like, so, um, what's what's your view? You know, we're just talking about, you know, working hard. We still have to work, right? We have to put in the work, but we also, I think, need to be smart on how we manage that income because, as you pointed out, like our income isn't always scalable. It is where it is sometimes. Not everyone works in jobs that have scalable opportunity in, ter- in the form of bonuses or yeah. options or whatever. So I think working hard is is still, you know, important. And recently, and I, I, I did some kind of, you know, uh, stuff on social media about this and, and commentary about my opinion. But what's your view on the proposed kind of four day work week? Like, how do you think that ties into, you know, like, uh, like for me, I think if you can, the, the, the productive and people that are optimizing will find ways, whether it's three, four, five, six, seven days. But I think I have some challenges Mm. with kind of lowering the bar because I think, well, it will be, you can always lower the bar, right? Like, but in terms of, where you sit what's your view on that or do you know yeah that no one? it's um i mean very very interesting question um four day work week and and how that will kind of like fit into how we run businesses and how we run um 
you know, society, right? Uh, I think, um, I think it depends from what perspective you're coming from. So, um, if you're coming from the business owner perspective, um, you, what you want is you just want, um, you want the output from that person. And, you know, it, does it matter if they're doing it? Um, over a 15 hour a day or they're doing it over a, a seven hour day. What you want is the output and the outcomes. Um, and that's, that's really what you just focus on. You just, and so if a four day work week is actually going to help people work more quickly because they, um, you know, because they have enough time to, to get away and sort of recharge and think, then, then fantastic. But, you know, I think it's, it's going to have to be, it's hard to sort of dictate it across. Um, across the whole society and say, this is what we're going to do. Because it, it really has to be a bit of a case by case. But, you know, if from the business owner perspective, you just want the output. Like it doesn't matter how it happens. Just make it happen. Um, from the, uh, from the employee side of things, um, uh, clearly like that's great. If you can, uh, I, I think it is kind of a recognized fact that, um, a lot of employee time across many businesses, um, uh, around Australia, you know, a lot of it is often sort of just FaceTime. Um, they're just there to make sure they, they make up the hours. So if they can condense that into a four day week, um, that actually kind of optimizes their time as well, potentially, if it's done properly. Um, so that, uh, giving them a little bit more time as well. So it's kind of a, um, you could see it as an optimization of, of time because, um, you know, simply just being at work doesn't mean you are working. Um, so that's, I guess that's what I'm always focused on. It's like, what's the output? Um, uh, uh, yeah. And I, I think like, you know, uh, right now I work with a, a contracting and, you know, the CEO is a great guy and he always talks about Parkinson's law, right? Like people will do the work in the time right. that they're allotted. And my view is that like people will opt, like the people, I, I don't believe environments can optimize yeah. people. Yeah in many ways i think people will optimize themselves and 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 so my concern would be that what we're doing and particularly in how it relates to millennials is we're continuing to soften the work mm. environment and you know how does that look for our young people coming into a 4 day work week when the rest of the world is competitive and they're productive and they're a bit more mm. switched on and you know this was all about mental health initiative and, and productivity i'm all about that but the view for me is about strengthening and how do we strengthen the individual through things like what you're talking about your education right like how you're educating millennials to say okay well look you've got a finite amount of time finite amount of energy how do we scale your energy in um in terms of the return on energy really yeah, and return yeah. on your money versus looking at ways at kind of softening the playing field, which I don't think will serve us as a society well necessarily moving moving forward. Mm. Um but yeah, look, it, it's it's an it's an interesting one and um one that I'm paying attention yeah. to. So I I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the millennials and moving into the future, right? So our increasingly seeing millennials not being interested in buying homes we're seeing new business models being set up around rent to buy i think you can kind of 
you know, there's new models where you can effectively rent something and have it customized mm. to your mm. liking because, yep. you know, um, developers have realized not everyone wants to, to buy. Do you see in the future, like, like we fast forward, let's say mm. 20 years, do you see most millennials owning homes? Do you think that a lot of that, like, you know, I, I reflect upon it and I see a lot of the millennials that go into mm. trades and aren't kind of necessarily conscious about how they're managing their money, but they did have parents that were professionals that might leave them mm. homes. Like, what do you think the landscape will look like in 20 years? Just I mean, it's, it's a great question. You know, you've got a few different models around the world. Um, you've got places where uh, there are strong protections for tenants and you can have tenancy for for life. And that, that happens in some places in Europe. Um, uh, in, you know, for example, Germany has quite strong tenancy protections um so uh you know it's possible that that we would move sort of more in that direction um which would make tenancy for life much more feasible in australia um and give you the kind of necessary protections that you can't just be thrown out of your house um that you're renting you know with four weeks notice but the thing you know what i've heard i've heard people say this that oh they're they're not going to bother trying to buy a house they're just going to do something else because it's it's too it's too hard and uh and what i say in response is you know that's a very risky strategy that's an extremely risky strategy because we may move towards a model where there are stronger tenancy protections such as they have in germany um or in other places in europe but we may not you know that's a that's a political question um we're going to have to vote on these questions over our lives but who knows what's going to happen as it stands the current tenancy protections um, are not that strong. So you can, and this is, it's fine when you're young, um, but when you're old, you don't want to be in a situation where you can get kicked out of your house with a few weeks notice because the landlord wants to kick you out or because they want to sell or something else happens. Um, that's not financial security. Um, you you want to be in a situation where you have a place to live that's yours um, that you can't be kicked out of. So it's an extremely risky strategy, in my view, to not try and buy a place, um, given the current laws and, pre and regulations as they stand. They might change, but they may well not. Um, so I think it's, um, it's a very wise uh, strategy to try and find, try and buy something to live that is yours, to live in that is yours, a roof over your um, head. You know, it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be like fancy. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be yours. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when it comes to personal finances, you have to take things as they are, not things as you hope they will be. Um, that's about, that's how you, you know, give yourself financial, um, security. So, uh, you know, yeah, the core of that point is things may not change and they may change. You don't, you just don't know. We can't. We can't know what's going to happen with um, with tenancy protections down the track, but you can take the steps that are kind of prudent today. Um, uh, you know, uh, in terms of like broader home ownership, um, yeah, it's it's undoubtedly it's becoming more difficult. It really, really is. Um, it's more expensive. Uh, there's more demand, and um, you know, there's just not enough houses in the places that people live. So it's um, 
it's probably going to stay difficult, um, unfortunately. And that's that's a real challenge that we have as a as a society to kind of fix these to fix access to housing. It may also drive younger people to stay at home or go into shared accommodation and push them down an yeah. entrepreneurial yeah. route. Right. Like if you think about it, right, like instead of going and buying a house, like, you know, you got a whole Gary V generation too, right? Like, you know, people are like, you know what, I'm going to hustle on the side. And, and you know, it might create actually more entrepreneurs that drive, I mean, greater wealth at, at, at the end, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, it's certainly possible. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> as I said earlier, I mean, there's just, there's no guarantees with, um, with entrepreneurship. There, there really isn't. So you've got to take, you got to do the things that you can as well to, to give yourself as much financial security as possible while you're doing that and going out and um, trying to create wealth and, and hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to start to land this plane, Kim, but we've always got one question around habits. Yeah. So if you were to, to kind of give our audience a good habit or a good, um, you know, habit or two particular to financial you know, uh, realm, what would that be? Uh, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and it's it's just taking some control. Um, it's getting into the habit of um, checking, you know, your credit card statement when it comes in. It's getting into the habit of checking what's happening, uh, you know, with changes to your super and changes to your health insurance um, when they send those emails through. Um, Phone companies, you know, I can't even um, tell you the amount of times I've had to call up the phone phone company because they've stuffed up my bill. Um, it, it's um, it, it's really this, yeah. The habit is just actively managing your finances because it's so easy to just let it slip um, and not worry about it and think it's you know a problem for later. You, um, so it's uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be you know the one the one habit I think is to take control of your own money because it's your money. It's not theirs. They're the ones who are just trying to take it off you. Um, so if you, uh, if you don't manage your money, someone else is going to come in and manage it for you. So, um, you know, that is, that's my one sort of uh, uh, financial habit. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And Kim, where can our audience learn more about you and your, and your Yeah, book? so um, jump onto my website, kimnorthen.com. Uh, that has all the details about the book and where you can buy it. Um, you can uh, follow me on Instagram as well. Um, got a Kim Northwood finance guy uh, on Instagram. And uh, yeah, please, if anyone wants to get in touch, please, please do so. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kim. Have a, a great rest of the day, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.